Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Hey folks, this week's show is another live event. And like most live events that uh, I do for the show, uh, this was part of Stumptown Stories, a Pacific Northwest history collective that meets every month at downtown Portland's historic Jack London Bar. And we have writers and podcasters and authors uh, popularizing history while people drink beer. It's great. This episode is kind of a sequel to episode 21. That was the episode I did on Shanghai. And you don't have to listen to episode 21 to really kind of get this episode, but I do think it kind of helps and it gives you more context. Uh, so if you like, I would suggest listen to episode 21 if you haven't already. That will tell you about how lots of guys who didn't want to be sailors became sailors. And then fire this episode up. And this is all about how once these guys were on their boats, they were not allowed to quit. Uh, they're kind of bookends. Uh, because it's a live episode, uh, I tend to speak much more casually uh, in front of a crowd than I do when I'm recording the podcast. So there is some salty language befitting of a sailor in the episode. So uh, keep that in mind if you are listening to this at work or in the presence of children. Uh, there are going to be swears. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. So uh, tonight I wanted to talk about um, how bad it was to be a sailor uh, in North America, or more precisely, in the oceans adjacent to North America, uh, at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s. And when people talk about, you know, how bad things were for sailors, they usually focus on how you got into the job. So, um, a lot has been written and said and talked about Shanghai, uh, also known as crimping, which was the way that a lot of ships acquired their uh, staffs, so to speak, their workers. And I'm not going to spend too much time on Shanghai or crimping. Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can listen to the two-part episode on Kick-Ass Oregon History All About It, which is great. Yeah. Or, or there is also a uh, less awesome one-part episode on my own podcast also about Shanghai. Um, but to... To briefly review what that was, um, in the late 1800s, particularly in the west coast of the United States, uh, you had all of these very large labor-intensive transportation machines called boats. And they had a small problem. There were not enough dudes to make the boats go. So a lot of people were distracted by things like the California Gold Rush. So because there were lots of, you know, laborers who were off produce, uh, pursuing the shiny ground rocks that would maybe make them rich, there were less dudes to go around who would, like, make sales work. This is a problem. So instead of having some kind of equitable market solution where you pay guys enough, where they say, hey, dudes, this is actually a pretty good deal. Uh, we're going to give you this many dollars to work on our boat. Uh, you resort to things like coercion, violence, and kidnapping. And there are, there's a lot of mythology about Shanghai. There's a lot of like, folklore and there's a lot of stories about Shanghaiers and guys who got shanghai And I'm not going to go into that too much, but here's how it worked most of the time. Um, there were plenty of boarding houses in places like Portland and Astoria and Tacoma and Seattle and San Francisco where guys could stay on credit. 
and these guys who did not have any money or liquidity or jobs could avail themselves of all kinds of things like food, room, board, um, companionship, a new pair of pants, um, a haircut, whatever things they might need or think they might need, and it's all drawn against future wages they might earn. Now, this is not necessarily things are at great prices or great deals for them. Uh, they're going into debt, and as they're going into debt, um, they're basically being, I think Doug Ken Crispin from Kick-Ass Organ History put it this way, they're being charged Hilton prices for Hojo-style accommodations. That's how you put it, right, Doug? He's in the audience. I'm putting him on. So. Yes, something like that, yeah. Uh, so basically, they're getting gouged because they're a captive audience. Uh, then they get kicked over to a boat or a shipping company um, where they are suddenly paying off their debt. And it could take them quite a long time to pay off their debt. And that's only the most basic way that that could work. You also could get guys signing agreements under duress or under the influence of alcohol or other drugs. So let's say you're hanging out in a boarding house in, say, San Francisco or Portland or Astoria or some other place, and you meet a new friend, you're talking to him, uh, suddenly your drunk ass is signing something and you don't know what it is, uh, boom, you're on a boat. And not in a good way with the Lonely Island, in the bad way where you have to do lots of stuff. So, Shanghai was common. Uh, that is the basics. It is way more complicated than that. But tonight, I didn't really want to talk about how sailors got into their uh, shitty, abusive, terrible jobs. Um, because, again, there, a lot has been written and a lot has been said about that. I want to talk about how they couldn't get out of their shitty, abusive, terrible jobs. Oh, by the way, um, one of my favorite things about Shanghai is that uh, there is so much stuff and so much lore about it. There is a Mickey Mouse cartoon <laughs> called Shanghai. Yeah. And also, there is a Charlie Chaplin movie uh, called Shanghai. Um, and there is a Laurel, not a Laurel Harvey, an Abbott and Costello movie called The Live Ghost, where Abbott and Costello are, um, you know, they are basically like made Shanghaiers, uh, and they really, really suck at it. So it's a hilarious movie about those guys being like the worst human traffickers ever. Yeah. <laughs> Comedy, everybody. So yeah, it was something that's been widely talked about and widely known, and you know, pop culture, I think, is pretty familiar with it. Um, but I do think it's always important to mention that, because um, the thing on one end of the job was not equitable and not fair and not free, and the thing on the other end of the job was also not equitable and not fair and not free. Uh, conditions on boats were awful. Um, in the late 1800s, conditions started to decay uh, compared to what they had been. Uh, there was lots of cost cutting. You had a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a lot of cost cutting uh, because the price of labor was so high. You had bad food, you had abusive captains, you had abusive first mates. And the United States did abolish flogging in the Merchant Marine and Navy in 1850, which is great. But, but, yeah, go us, civil rights. Um, but on the other hand, there are lots more subtle ways that you could manipulate and you know, punish your crew. Um, that meant that there were lots of, uh, lots of sailors who very, very badly wanted to leave this job that was ridden with disease, hard labor, and abusive captains behind. And I don't really have a good, way to put, a good place to put this, but I also want to talk about who these sailors were. 
uh, because I think this is also important to emphasize. Uh, when I say sailors this evening, um, I'm not talking about just a bunch of, you know, white dudes who happen to have eye patches or tricorn hats. The sailors that I'm talking about in the late 1800s were a gigantic diverse population that were of many races, many ethnicities, many nationalistic and linguistic groups, and that's something that often gets erased in portrayals of Shanghai. Uh, usually when you're seeing portrayals of Shanghai, you're seeing something, someone who looks like Charlie Chaplin. But um, one source that I read about this said that a minority of the people working in the American Merchant Marine at the end of the 1800s were actually from America. So we are also talking about a very large population that are not nationally or racially or linguistically um, considered quote-unquote American at that time. They are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants at all. Uh, and I think that's important when I read you some of the like nasty Supreme Court decisions. <clears throat> when I read you some of the uh, rather nasty jurisprudence, I'm going to read you a bit later. So, in the, 18, in the late 1880s, there was a ship, much like many other ships, called the Arago. And the Arago, it was carrying lumber from the Pacific Northwest, and it was bound ultimately for Valparaiso, Chile. And the Arago had a brief stopover at Astoria, Oregon. And at that time, there were four guys on the Arago, Robert Robertson, by the way, that's a terrible name to give your child, Robert Robertson, P.H. Uh, Olson, John Bradley, and M. Hansen, who said, fuck this, uh, we want to quit. They said that they had been hoodwinked into the job in the first place, that they had been manipulated into even being on the ship. Also, uh, that conditions were exceptionally poor. That's a story, by the way. Uh, also, the conditions were exceptionally poor and that they wanted to quit. And these guys perceived it as their right to quit, uh, just like any other job. If you were cutting down trees in the woods and it was dangerous and there were bears, you could quit. If you were pouring drinks at a bar and you know, the clientele was awful and you didn't like the owner, you could quit. And these guys said, hey, we're at a, you know, stopping at Astoria. Why not? Let's just go. So at Astoria, Oregon, they walk off the job and they're not getting paid. But hey, the job is so terrible that that makes it worth it for them. And this is immediately considered a mutiny. So in the press at the time, these guys walking off the job is considered to be a mutiny, which is the kind of thing that you have adventure novels about. Um, but all the reading that I've done about this is basically, it's not like a bunch of guys drawing their like cutlasses or whatever and saying to the captain, hey bro, our boat now. Uh, no, this is a bunch of dudes who just said, I do not like this job, I would like another please. You know, which is a thing that you could normally do in America. Um, after they attempt to quit, though, they are pursued by the local marshal in Astoria, a guy called Barry Baldwin, who ultimately catches the fourth quote-unquote mutineers, and they were held in Astoria for 16 days while the Arago got ready to sail again. And on board, they said, no, we are not going to have any part of this. Uh, we quit this job, and when they were on the Arago, from Astoria down to San Francisco, they refused to work. And according to the Portland Oregonian, they also tried to induce the other sailors on board the Arago to refuse to work as well. So they're saying, this is not our job, we quit, um, take this occupation and shove it. Um, what's more, 
Um, they said that their imprisonment in Astoria was not justified because this was a civil contract. So they also said that even if they were uh, guilty of breaching a contract, imprisonment, uh, this did not rise to the level of imprisonment. So they're arrested in San Francisco. And when they're arrested in San Francisco, they become ideal plaintiffs for an incipient civil rights movement that is happening at that time. So this guy is called Andrew Ferusseth. And Andrew Ferusseth, he was one of the founders of the Siemens Union of the Pacific. And what, they were look, uh, and what they were looking for at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s was rights for sailors with regards to hiring, with regards to working conditions, and also the right to quit your job. Uh, this dude, he was a Scandinavian immigrant. Uh, one of his nicknames was the Old Viking, which is great. At the time, at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the 1800s, late 1880s, early 1890s, uh, this advocacy group was doing what lots of advocacy groups were doing, which was finding an aggrieved party who had a really, really good narrative that they could use. And maybe, if they made their case, uh, they could actually go all the way to a federal court or the Supreme Court and establish some jurisprudence that's going to be favorable to them. So the Siemens Union of the Pacific and Andrew Ferusseth here, they take these guys' case. And I'm going to just cut to the chase and tell you that it goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Where the United States Supreme Court, they say, in Robertson versus Baldwin, Robertson again, one of the sailors, and Baldwin, the marshal in Astoria, where the Supreme Court say, yeah, this is fucked up, you have the right to quit. No, just kidding. Uh, they say the opposite of that. Um, a lot has been written on this era of the Supreme Court that was extraordinarily inequitable with regards to how it looked at race and how it looked at labor. Um, but this is a decision that's not looked at particularly often. Now, the Supreme Court decision that ultimately happened in 1897 was a whopping 8 to 1, and it was authored by a Supreme Court justice named Henry Billings Brown who, a year earlier, wrote the opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson, the separate but equal case, saying that it's totally fine to have segregated uh, rail cars for black and white passengers. And here is uh, this guy's bio from the Oxford Companion to the Supreme Court. Uh, this guy, he, or the Oxford Companion to the Supreme Court, this is what they say about him. They say, Brown, a privileged son of the Yankee merchant class, was a reflexive social elitist whose opinions of women, African-Americans, Jews, and immigrants now seem odious, even if they were unexceptional for their time. Brown exalted, as he once wrote, that respect for the law is inherent in the Anglo-Saxon race. Unquote. So this dude who is speaking for the majority in this opinion is basically 1890s Antonin Scalia. <laughs> and... I really want to get into the reasoning of this case because it is uh, appalling for a modern person. So Brown, he says, of the agreement between sailors and between their masters, and also of the quote-unquote agreement that sailors are not allowed to desert when they're on boats, of this, he says, quote, such agreement for a limited personal servitude at one time was very common in England, and by statute it was enacted that if any servant in hus husbandry or any artificer, calico printer, handcraftsman, miner, collier, keelman, pitman, glassman, potter, laborer, or other person, 
or other person should contracts to serve another for a definite time and should desert such service during the term of the contract, he was made liable to a criminal punishment, unquote. So he opens up his decision by basically saying, hey, that's how they did things back in England, um, which is weird. And he also says, the law is perfectly well settled that the first ten amendments of the Constitution, commonly known as the Bill of Rights, were not intended to lay down any novel principles of government, but simply to embody certain guarantees and immunities, which we had inherited from our English ancestors, and which had, from time immemorial, been subject to certain well-recognized exceptions arising from the necessities of the case. So, holy shit, this is a conservative justice in the 1890s making a case against American exceptionalism, which I found very, very weird for a modern person. When you often talk about, like, when you often look at, like, the, uh, you know, political discourse of now, uh, you see the case for American exceptionalism usually coming from the right. Uh, here we see a very strong case for American non-exceptionalism coming from the right, and for this guy basically saying that the American Revolution, the Bill of Rights, and the Civil War Amendments were no big thing. He is saying that the American experiment in liberty for all is not an experiment. And he goes on. From the earliest historical period, the contract of the sailor has been treated as an exceptional one, involving, to a certain extent, the surrender of his personal liberty during the life of the contract. Indeed, the business of navigation could scarcely be carried on without some guarantee, beyond the ordinary civil remedies upon contract, that the sailor will not desert the ship at a critical moment or leave her at some place where seamen are impossible to be obtained. <clears throat> Quote, to rot in her neglected brine. Also, he's referring to ships as her, which is weird because ships don't have vaginas. Well, some women don't have vaginas, but still, ships are not people. Um, it's weird. Ships are its people. Come on. He goes on. Such desertion might involve a long delay of the vessel while the master is seeking another crew, an abandonment of the voyage, and in some cases the, safe, the safety of the ship herself. Hence, the laws of nearly all maritime nations have made provision for securing the personal attendance of the crew on board and for their criminal punishment for desertion or absence without leave during the life of shipping articles. And he says that this has gone on for years and years and years, invoking, in particular, the Hanseatic League and the Rhodians. Um, so, the Rhodians, by the way, being people from Rhodes, you know, that island with the Colossus, uh, not Rhodians from Star Wars. Yeah, he, keeps, he talks about the Rhodians in a big uh, part of the thing, and I just kept thinking about Greedo. So, again and again, Brown makes appeals to history and to tradition. Uh, and he is making appeals to laws and customs uh, completely outside of the United States, which is very weird because his job is to interpret and say what a law is for the United, for the United States. And one more thing from him. Here's the big one. He says... Indeed, seamen are treated by Congress, as well as by the Parliament of Great Britain, as deficient in that full and intelligent responsibility for their acts, which is a credit to ordinary adults, and as needing the protection of the law in the same sense in which minors and wards are entitled to protection of their parents and guardians. Unquote. So, he is making an extraordinarily paternalistic argument about sailors, saying that they are deficient. And he does not go out and say that, hey, these crews are large, diverse, 
that they are racial and ethnic and nationalistic minorities, but this is a dog whistle. He is basically saying that these large ethnically diverse crews of laborers aren't really people in the like strictest sense of the word. They need the guidance of the usually white, always male, entirely upper class uh, officers of the ship and uh, owners of the shipping company. Some things about Brown's decision. Um, there is another way that he could have gone here. He could have made the argument that sailors are like soldiers. Uh, soldiers are not allowed to desert. Soldiers are not allowed to just leave their unit and go off and do their own thing because that's dangerous, because that puts the lives of other people at risk. And so, for the good of the collective, they need to do their job. However, he doesn't do that. Uh, he does not make that argument. Instead, he carves out an exception to the 13th Amendment, the amendment that bans slavery and involuntary servitude, by saying that, you know, they're kind of like kids. There's also a lot of language about, in Brown's decision, talking about free choice and agency on behalf of the sailors, talking about how they entered into contracts. But the rhetoric of decision does not match up with that. Again, he's talking about choice and agency and contracts, um, yet also talking about sailors in really paternalistic terms. Um, and he is saying that people are not allowed to freely leave um, this institution because they freely entered into it. But, as I mentioned earlier, sailors did not frequently enter into their contracts. Uh, they got shanghaied, they got crimped, they got manipulated, uh, they got brought on into places, put in a whole bunch of debt, they got hoodwinked, they got coerced, uh, they got assaulted, and that is how they ended up on boats. So we're dealing with a situation where you have unfree choices on one end uh, when you get you know, brought into it, and you have unfree choices on the other end where you're not allowed to quit. And the Supreme Court has said that does not violate the 13th Amendment. So if you want to read this decision as basically saying slavery is okay as long as it's on boats, you totally can, and I think that is a completely accurate way to read it. Fortunately, there was a dissent. This was an 8-1 decision, which again is appalling because 8-1. But the dissent was written by this guy, John Marshall Harlan. His sort of timeline, his sort of life is very much kind of a, uh, you know, struck by lightning on the road to Damascus, Saul and Paul sort of situation, where he actually began his political career as an ardent supporter of slavery. And later on after the Civil War and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, uh, he came around and became a big booster for civil rights and equity uh, in his decisions and in his rhetoric. And so this guy, who has started his life as a slavery booster and is ending his career as you know, anti-that, he says, quote, In considering the antiquity of regulations that restrain the personal freedom of semen, the court refers to the laws of the ancient Rhodians, which are supposed to have antecedent which are supposed to have antedated the Christian era. But those laws, whatever they may have been, were enacted at a time when no account was taken of a man as a man, when human life and human liberty were regarded as of little value, and when the powers of government were employed to gratify the ambition and the pleasure of despotic rulers rather than promote the welfare of the people. Unquote. So, this guy is saying, hey, uh, you are citing laws way back from like 
stab each other with spears times, and they are no longer relevant. And he is also, in his dissent, specifically saying that the United States is different from basically every other society that we've ever had that relies to some extent on slavery, on serfdom, on peonage, that sort of thing. Um, and he also says in his dissent that, let's be real here, shanghai and crimping is a thing, let's not fool ourselves. One of the other things that I want to talk about that is the ultimate irony uh, of this decision is that this decision basically said, if you are a sailor, if you're a seaman, the marshal or the other law enforcement agents of a town are allowed to arrest you and return you to your ship. That is legal. And you are allowed to be made to work. That's not a violation of your rights or the 13th Amendment or anything like that. The ultimate ir- irony, though, is that under, circum- under certain circumstances, desertion was in fact encouraged for mariners. I know, I just got a sideways look from the crowd, wondering how can that be? <laughs> so, sailing was not like other jobs where you got paid at the end of the week. In sailing, you got paid at the end of the voyage. And that voyage could last anywhere from, say, three weeks to over a year. And as you're on this long, hard trip where you are eating bad food, where you are maybe taking orders from a captain who is speaking a language, or more more accurately, a first mate, who is maybe uh, speaking a language you do not understand entirely, um, where you are at risk of disease and physical abuse and hard labor and all that, you're getting nothing. You are not get any, getting any kind of compensation uh, for your labor. Suddenly, you're outside San Francisco, or Astoria, or Portland, or Tacoma, and your ship is not actually uh, tied up to anything. Your ship is still out there, maybe a mile, maybe less, from the actual docks. On paper, you are still at sea. Quote unquote. Suddenly, a guy or other guys comes up in a rowboat, and they come on board, and these gentlemen, they say to you, well, they're not actually gentlemen, they say, guys, I am so sorry you got caught up with this boat. It has a reputation, you know, the food is bad, the captain's a jerk, the first mate's a jerk, uh, we know conditions are terrible, I want to help you out. I got a place in town, and we got beds there. We got beer, we got food, we got, food, we got girls. Um, have a cigar. No, don't worry about it. That's on me. And you know what? We can go right now. It's fine. Let's go. And the guys get off the boat. They go into town. They check into a new boarding house where they are accruing new debt. And they get kicked over to another ship. And they're working it off again. They're indentured once again, and they are hoodwinked or assaulted or in some ways coerced onto yet another boat, and they never actually get their hands on real money. Now, why would the shipping company be fine with all their guys just noping out? Well, they deserted. They get zero dollars. All those guys who left, hey, those are paychecks you don't actually have to write. Sure, you need a new crew, and you're going to have to deal with your labor suppliers, with the Shanghaiers and with the Crips. But that ultimately could be much cheaper than actually paying your guys an equitable living wage for the, for the uh, labor that they're doing. 
So the guys in the boat, they get passed around from boat to boat without any real payment. Uh, the Shanghaiers, the middle managers who move labor around, uh, they get paid. The shipping companies, they get a good deal because they are paying labor managers rather than laborers. And it all works out for everybody except the common dudes who are actually doing the hard work. So in certain instances, desertion was part of the system. In certain instances, desertion was exactly what the shipping company wanted you to do. And it's exactly what the Shanghaiers and the Crimps wanted you to do. But when it was just for you, well, then a marshal comes along and puts you on a boat again. Earlier, I mentioned Andrew Ferusith, who was one of the guys who helped found the Sailors Union of the Pacific. And he had brought this case up through the courts to the Supreme Court uh, in hopes that this, these guys were going to be kind of model plaintiffs and this would establish jurisprudence for sailors that would you know, give them rights. Uh, it would allow for precedent uh, that allowed for fair treatment of sailors uh, later on. That completely backfired. Ferusov, he continues to work, but now on the legislative side as opposed to the judicial side. Um, Ferusov started lobbying Congress for... Uh, <clears throat> he started lobbying Congress for legislation that would enshrine rights for sailors. And he did this until 1915, with the result of the, and the end result was the La Follette Seamen's Act, which is known as the Magna Carta for Sailors. One of the major things that this did was it repealed the statutes, statutes upheld by Robertson versus Baldwin. It said that if you are a sailor and you want to quit your job, you can do that. Uh, it's just like any other job where you can just say, this sucks, um, take off your work uniform, say, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, fuck you, and walk. Uh, it also did other things as well. For example, um, it reduced penalties for disobedience. Uh, it, allowed, it established limits on Siemens working hours. Uh, it established a minimum quality of food that these guys get, got. You were no longer allowed to just feed these guys, you know, maggot-infested hardtack and say, hey, at least there's protein in it. Um, it also required work safety uh, regulations. For example, these boats that are out on the oceans and they're encountering storms and sharks and giant squid, well, you got to have lifeboats. Um, oh, and icebergs. Um, the Titanic disaster in 1912 was a huge reason why this got passed. After that got well publicized and the safety conditions on the, on the Titanic were in papers all over the place, yes, there was way more political impetus to have basic safety standards on ships. Um, and it said that, I love this, uh, a minimum of 75% of the seamen aboard a vessel, they need to understand the language spoken by the officers. So, if you want to get a boat and just pile a bunch of foreigners on there and just sort of like coerce them to follow you along and take them somewhere where they have, you know, no connections uh, in terms of family or even anyone who speaks their language and then just boss them about, well, you cannot do that anymore. Later on, uh, the Supreme Court entered what was known as the Lochner era. Um, Robertson versus Baldwin, that was in 1897. But after that, you would have other cases, like in 1905, uh, Lochner versus New York, a Supreme Court case 
that struck down labor regulations for New York bakers. That case, it said, hey, uh, statutes limiting hours for bakers at 60 hours per week and 10 hours per day, those are unreasonable. Of course bakers can be made to work more than 60 hours per week and more than 10 hours per day. The Supreme Court said that is just fine with us. And that whole era of the Supreme Court was them carving out exceptions to labor regulations and to things that were considered constitutional rights, which is extraordinarily frightening. Because again, something that's important to realize is that when you have something like the Bill of Rights, or when you have something like the 13th Amendment or the 14th Amendment, um, you can herald that as something that's progressive, and you can herald that as a kind of revolution. But there will be a counter-revolution by legislation, or by some other, or by legislation, by jurisprudence, or by some other expression of power, the people that you originally tried to limit and rebel against are probably going to bite back at you. And in Robertson versus Baldwin, that is exactly what they did. Thank you, guys. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. As always, to support the podcast, and please do support the podcast. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, sign up for a monthly Patreon contribution uh, to keep this thing running, and thank you very, very much for those of you who have been contributing and keeping the podcast afloat. I appreciate that boundlessly. Um, Also, give us a like, uh, give us a thumbs up over on the Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Uh, over on iTunes, give us a rating and a review. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. And if you have questions or comments or concerns about the podcast, or if you just want to say hi, feel free to do so. Uh, feel free to at me on Twitter or message the podcast on Facebook or that sort of thing. Um, I like hearing from you guys. Uh, I'm also on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. And thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.